We are continuing in our series as we go through this book verse by verse. We are drawing near to the close. We only have a couple of more sermons and we will be through with the book of 1 John. We're going to be looking at today uh, chapter 5 verses 16 and 17 of the book of 1 John. The title of the sermon this morning is The Power of Intercessory Prayer. The Power of Intercessory Prayer. And for you children, our key words this morning will be brother, prayer, and expectancy. (laughs) By way of introduction, I want to go back and kind of um, review a good bit of what I talked about last week because as we're going to see as we go through these two verses, they... They are linked in the context of verses 13, uh, well, in, in the context of the whole book, but specifically linked to the context of verses 13 through 15 that we talked about last week. And we talked about prayer last week, and so we're going to continue in that will be the main subject this morning. So I want to go back just as a reminder and refresher so that we can link it together um, in that way. I want to read, I'm going to go ahead and read the text. I'm going to re- start back in verse 13. And read all the way to verse 17 this morning. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sins that lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin. There is sin that does not lead to death. And so just to kind of review to cover the context of verses 13 through 15 that will help us understand better, verses 16 through 17, we see that John was summing up the entire letter, the entire purpose of his writing, the book of 1 John in verse 13, when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We've seen that the purpose of his gospel, uh, the writing of the gospel of John, was so that you would believe. It was an evangelistic outreach to those who did not know Christ as Savior. But here, many years later, John the pastor and the church is being built, and he's writing to the church. He's writing to those who already believe. But there's problems in the church. There's false teachers infiltrating the church. And so their faith is being shaken. There are doubts creeping in. And and so his purpose of writing this letter is to assure them, those who truly do believe in the name of the Son of God, that they they do have eternal life. And so with that being the foundation of what we talked about last week, we said that coming out of that, coming out of that confidence, out of that assurance that we understand that we have eternal life, that, that that has been settled, We have this confidence in prayer. We see several things that John taught us about prayer. This is a great promise that he gave us about about what prayer is about and what he does and uses it for. And I had five points that was outlined in this promise. The first thing we saw that John was talking about is that we can have confidence as we come before God. Confidence, assurance, knowing that I am coming to to the throne of God to pray and He is hearing me. I have confidence coming into His presence, coming boldly into His presence. Not arrogantly, but boldly because Christ has paved the way for us to come into His presence. And what do we do when we come into His presence? Then we must follow through by asking. He does not just give us the things that He thinks we might need, even though He knows those things. He's omniscient. But nonetheless, He requires us and and pleads with us that we ask that we place our petitions before Him and, be, and ask Him and be specific of the things that are burdening our hearts. And then He gives us that great promise. And that was one of the things that we really, I hope that you took away from last week, that really encouraged your faith and especially your desire to pray and the ability to pray, is that God says He hears us. And He doesn't just hear us audibly. He hears everybody audibly. He says He hears us in a sense that He is blessing us and giving us a favorable answer to our prayer. That's what He means when He says He hears us. Not only does He say He hears us and answers us favorably, He says you have the request that you have already spoken as if you already have them now. And so I hope that encouraged you this week as you were beginning to hopefully energize your prayer life again 
to see that this is just not some afterthought thing that we just do because God tells us to do, and we don't know whether it has any impact or not. Prayer is essential to fulfilling the will of God, and we've seen that was the prerequisite that God put forth uh, that when we come to ask Him, that we ask Him according to His will. And so that shapes the entire conversation of our prayer life. And so we see that if we're asking things according to His will, and that presupposes that we know His will, and we know His will through His, through his Word, then we are asking and we are getting the things that we are asking because He has already promised that He will provide those things because God always does His will. And so all of that shapes what we're going to be talking about tonight, today, in the sense that our prayer life is central, is central and key and crucial to the working of the kingdom of God. Does He need our prayers to work His will? No. God is sovereign. He can do His will any which way he, he desires to do that. But just as if God could have removed the Jews of old from Egypt just by the speaking of the word and they would have left or, or maybe even been energized 5,000 miles away, he could have done that. But what did he do? No, he used the means of Moses. He used the means of those, of those ten plagues that he put upon Egypt. He used the means of Aaron and Moses bringing them out to Mount Sinai to accomplish his will. It is the same, to the, same with this issue of prayer. God is sovereign and He accomplishes His will in our life and in the kingdom and everybody else's life. But He is telling us here in this particular context that He uses the prayers of His saints to accomplish His will. And I hope that springs joy in your heart and an excitement and expectancy to know that the sovereign King of the universe uses my little itty-bitty prayers that sometimes I wonder even get past the ceiling. He is using those things to be a part of working out His will in this kingdom. Is that not a glorious truth? Does that not swell up in your heart excitement and vigor in knowing that I am actively building this kingdom? It's not that I'm providing all of these programs and I'm building this lavish campus of this church that's going to build His kingdoms. It is through the prayers of His saints that He is building His church and He is building His kingdom. And if we didn't have any of these things around us, if we're praying for His kingdom to accomplish and come in this community, it will come. And it is because His people are praying. And so that is what we were talking about and we were challenged with last night, or last week rather, the issue of this importance of prayer and this expectancy that God is using our prayers to bring about His will. And now we get into verses 16 and 17, our text for the day. And let me confess to you, this was a difficult study this week. These are probably two of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to interpret. And the study did not take that away from me. <laughs> uh, there, are, there are several ways that people interpret these verses. And so one thing I want to read here that will help shape our discussion um, about how we deal with things in the Bible that's, that, doesn't make, that don't make sense to us, that we can't really... Uh, just nail it down the point and say that's exactly what he means and I fully understand it and we all see it very clearly. That's not one of these issues today. So I want to read uh, from our London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 1 on the Holy Scriptures. Uh, he says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So what he's saying here, because he bases that on a, on a scripture in Second Peter, where Peter's talking about, he's relaying that you remember the Apostle Paul. He's taught us a lot of things. And then he says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 16, he's, he's encouraged us with a lot of things as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. But there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as do other scriptures. And so I just want to lay that foundation today that we're going to go through this and I'm going to try to explain it to you the different ways that people look at it, different theologians and kind of where I, where I fall on it. But I want, to, I want to stress that that's not the main point of what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to deal with that first. I'm really going to, my outline is going to be, first we're going to deal with the interpretation and the different issues that surround this difficult and 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 uh, under, uh, verse to understand, 
But then we're going to get into the very point of the verse and why John wrote it in the first place. It was not to give theologians material for thousands and thousands of years to disagree on and debate and study. It was linked to prayer. And so let's keep that in mind as we go through this. So we'll look at the interpretation issues and then we'll get into this issue of intercessory prayer, which is what John is challenging us with this morning. So John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sins that lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And Wow. Does not the Scripture says the wages of sin is what? Death. So are you telling me, John, and through Holy Spirit, that there is a sin that does not lead to death? You say that they're all the wages of all sin is death. So what are we talking about here? What is this sin unto death? It's a difficult question, so let's try to look at it. Apparently John's readers knew exactly what he meant because he doesn't really explain it. But we do not. And so we somehow in the, in the, in the 2,000 years since this has been written, we have, the, we have kind of not grasped the, the exact meaning of what John was intended, which his readers clearly understood. But that doesn't mean we can't narrow it down and see exactly what he's saying. And so I want to put forth four main views that I've, that I've learned that, are really cover, that cover this section uh, among orth, amongst Orthodox theologians and Christians over the centuries. And I will just try to see which one fits the context the best. The first one is the sin of unto death is some terrible sin that God will not forgive. Some terrible sin that God will not forgive. Uh, the, the early Christian father Tertullian taught that some sins such as murder, idolatry, fraud, denial of Christ, blasphemy, adultery, and fornication could not be committed by true Christians and that God would not forgive these sins. The Roman Catholic Church divides sins into two parts, venial sins, which are, which are sins that can be forgiven, and mortal sins, which are sins that result in spiritual death. But the Bible does not make such a distinction. And if Tertullian's list were applied to just a few people in the Bible, such as David, Solomon, Peter, and Paul, where would they be today? They would be in hell. And so we can reject this view outright because there, God makes no distinction amongst sin, because as he says here in verse 17 that we're looking at, all wrongdoing is sin, all of it. All of it, all the wages of sin is death. Sin is an affront to a holy God. All wrongdoing is sin. And so we can reject that view as not really fitting exactly what the context of the, this letter says, but also the broader context of the Bible. The second one is that the sin unto death is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We see that Jesus warned the Pharisees about this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, and he said that it could never be forgiven. Jesus was referring, what he was actually referring to was the continued willful rejection of him, Jesus, and attributing his works to Satan. Now, John Stott argues that if it is such hardened willful rejection of known truth that constitutes the sin unto death, and he also argues that both groups of sinners here are unbelievers here in this context because God will give life to those not committing the sin unto death. So this implies that they were spiritually dead. So for those whose sin is not unto death, and I know this is getting confusing, so try to stick with me. Those not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, believers may pray and God will save the sinner or give him life. And for those who are actually blaspheming the Spirit, there is no promise of life in response to our prayers. They have hardened themselves beyond the possibility of salvation. There, but there are several problems with this view. If we take it to mean this, then you have to understand the word brother here in verse 16 to refer to an unbeliever. Now, in some places, in, in, in some areas of context in the New Testament, the word brother, which is the Greek word adolfo, adelphoi, I believe is the way you pronounce it, can be used in a general sense to talk about my neighbor, not necessarily my brother, my Christian brother. But in the context of 1 John, and for, probably for the predominant way this, this word is used, it is usually used as a Christian brother. And that's exactly the way John uses it throughout the rest of his epistle. And so if we, if we was to look at this as brother not referring to, actually referring to unbelievers, the promise seems to guarantee salvation for everyone that you pray for who has not yet committed the unpardonable sin. 
but it doesn't really fit the reality that we know. God has saved some pretty hardened unbelievers over the years. I'm one of them. Such as the Apostle Paul. He was a blasphemer. And of course, John doesn't forbid the prayer for such, but only limits the promises to other groups. So in other words, what he's saying here is that we have to see that we, if you're talking about the unpardonable sin, then you're looking at both of these groups of people that John is praying to as both unbelievers. But one of them, one group, has not sinned against the Holy Spirit, but the other one has. And so how are you going to determine which one is which and how are you going to know which ones to pray for? And so that makes, it's a very difficult concept, so I think we can see that that really doesn't fit what John is saying here about the sin unto death. The third point, the sin unto death, is physical death. Some people have believed that this is talking about that you will actually experience physical death for those who persist in some sin. I think I've actually believed this or fell in this camp for a while. But I'll look at the problems here in a minute. But in 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul mentions, actually mentions that some, who had, some had died because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He actually says there was some sick. Um, and there were some actually asleep, which is really death, is what he's talking about. Some had actually died in the Corinthian church because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so what he, if, if this is what John has in mind, he, John is actually saying that in the ministry of prayer, some Christians have actually gone too far. God will not turn back his judgment of physical death. And so, and so the problem we have with this is that really then it's useless to pray. Because this view takes brother in the normal sense, but it has to understand life and death as physical life and death, not spiritual. But the problem here is that how do we know whether the sinning brother that we're looking at has actually gone too far to pray for? How do we know before he's died that he's actually going to die? How do we know God is going to judge him for his sin? Because let's compare two characters in the Bible. Here's the apostle or the disciple Peter at the time, he, he denies Christ three times, remember? On the night that he was betrayed, he denied Christ three times. That's a pretty heinous act, wouldn't you say? It's pretty bad, pretty bad. What happened to him? He repented and he was forgiven. He was restored. He was not judged by being struck down physically. Go to the Acts chapter 5. We have two individuals who seemingly promised something that they would give to the church, and then they go back on their promise, Ananias and Sapphira, and what happens to them? God strikes them dead. Now, I'm looking at these two, these two sins, and I'm like, well, that one's way worse what Peter did than Ananias and Sapphira. So I would probably, if I'm, if I'm looking at this from this viewpoint, I would say, well, there's no use to play for Peter. He's gone too far. That's it for him. He might as well go lay down and get ready, just go dig him a hole and get ready for God to strike him dead. And Ananias and Sapphira, that's why they were so dumbfounded at the point. They were like, why did they just drop dead? And so... What, we're, what I'm saying here is that it really does boil down to a, a useless command to tell us to, to not pray or to pray for those who have committed a sin unto physical death because we are not omniscient to know what's going to happen here. We don't know who God is going to judge physically. And yes, I do believe God does judge people physically and take them to physical death. That is his prerogative. But we don't know who they are. And so I don't think that fits into the context here of what we're talking about of prayer. And then finally, the fourth view I'm going to put forward this morning is that the sin unto death refers to apostasy from the faith. Some say that true believers can lose their salvation, but this goes against the truth that God keeps all whom he saves. He goes on in verse 18 of right here in chapter 5, he says that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And so the Bible does not describe those who make a profession of faith and look like believers for a while but then they turn from the faith, showing that they were not truly born of God. The context of 1 John with false teachers who had been a part of the fellowship but who had denied the faith lends support to the view that what John is saying here is kind of twofold. He's saying that the ones who have sinned unto death are really those false teachers that I warned you about back in 1 John chapter 2. And he said, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so... He's saying these are the ones who have turned, they have not lost their salvation because as we've covered throughout this book, as we've looked at it, they never had salvation to start with. They were merely professing believers, outward believers. They were not genuinely saved. And so John is saying here 
that those people that have went out from us, those people who are the false teachers who are who have uh, turned their back on Christ, who have denied Christ, which is one of the marks of a true believer that we have very clearly been uh, de- dealt with in this letter, he's saying those people are beyond this promise. Those people are beyond this promise. But in the realm of you, Christian, in the realm of the church, in the realm of the believer, in the realm of the brother in Christ, what is the testimony of your life and my life? We struggle with sin. We struggle with sin daily. Some of us fall into heinous sin. And some of us fall into heinous sin for a long period of time. We see Paul in Romans chapter 7 struggling with his own self, saying, oh, the things that I want to do, I find myself not doing, and the things that I don't want to do, this is what I end up doing. And he was, he, that was the, his crying out in that daily struggle of the Christian life. And so... I think what John is getting to, if we can nail this interpretation down and try to get past this point, is that what John is saying is that in the realm of prayer, and keep in mind this is linked to the broader context of last week, the promise of, of answered prayer, that we can expect that if we pray in the will of God, God will answer, He will hear us and answer us favorably in what we pray for. He's saying that same promise that's linked here in intercession for other people is not guaranteed for those who have sinned unto death, for those who have rejected Christ, for those who have turned their back on the faith, for those who do not love uh, the brethren, for those who do not love God, to those who do not walk in obedience. He's not saying that that it's a command that you not pray for them. He's saying, I am not going to provide this promise of answer to those people. And so the only prayer that we should be putting forth for people like that is a prayer for repentance a prayer for salvation. But in the realm of the believer, that's a, different, that's a different situation. And so that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time today looking at it. What exactly is he telling us about prayer in the context of the church and amongst God's people? And so to sum it up, I think we see here that the sin unto death, what is the sin unto death? What is the sin that leads to death? It is the consistent willful rejection of Jesus, the Son of God, and a willful disobedience to His commands and a refusal to love others as a way of life. It is the false teachers of 1 John 2.19, the Gnostic false teachers who had gone out from them. That's who he's talking about. And so, now I'm sure I have utterly confused you. So now I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to ask you to take all that that I just said. Maybe you took notes or maybe you can go back later and get the tape if you want to hear it again and try to make sense of it. Put it aside. Put it on the back burner for now. Because the golden nugget of truth in, this, in these passages here is not that we nail down what is the sin unto death. That is not the main thing. That's not the big idea that the Spirit is trying to get us to grasp here. The great truth of this text, which this text, which is directly connected to the great promise of verses 14 and 15, is that God promises to answer our prayers. And in, in the verses this morning, it is God promises to answer our prayers in intercessory prayer, on, prayers on behalf of others, and specifically intercessory prayer on behalf of brothers and sisters who are caught up in sin. And so that's what we spend the rest of our time. Let's look at this. What is this thing, intercessory prayer? And what is this promise? What is this promise that God promises to do? Intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is prayer for others. I mean, last week we talked about prayer for ourselves. And so it's good that the Holy Spirit would put this in here because what would we tend to do usually? Stay there. Let's just make sure I've got my bases covered with God and you do the same for you and you do the same for you and we're all okay. But that's not where God's taking us. He's saying, okay, you're going to pray for me. That's a given. I know you're going to pray for me because when when life is difficult, what what happens? We go to God in prayer because we feel the weight of that. We feel the tension of that. We feel the warfare. We feel the weight of our sin. And so what John, John and through the Holy Spirit is instructing us here is that what is the outworking of loving others the way you love God? It is taking their burdens along with yours and taking them to God. And so that's what intercessory prayer is. is. It's, it, it's one who takes the place of another or pleads another's case, if you want a definition. 
So what's the biblical foundation of this? The biblical basis for the New Testament believer's ministry, and I call it ministry, of intercessory prayer is our calling as priests unto God. The Word of God declares that we are a holy priesthood. We see that in 1 Peter 2. We are a royal priesthood also in 1 Peter 2. And we're a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1.5. The background for understanding this call, this calling to priestly intercession is found in the Old Testament example of the Levitical priesthood. The priest's responsibility was to stand before and between. He stood before God to minister to him with sacrifices and offerings. The priest also stood between a righteous God and a sinful man, bringing them together at the place of the blood sacrifice. We saw that in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 7, 11 through 19, it explains the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament ministries of the priests. The Old Testament Levitical priesthood was passed on from generation to generation. You were born as a Levite. You were born into the priesthood. You became a priest when you came of age. Uh, and that continued through descendants of the tribe of Levi. But then we see a new, a new type of priesthood coming to bear in Hebrews 7. He talks about the, the, let me say it right, the Melchizedek priesthood is spoken of in this passage. It's the new order of spiritual priests of whom the Lord Jesus, it says, is the high priest. It says that Christ is a, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so it is passed on to us through Christ's blood and our spiritual birth as new creatures in Christ. And so do you see what, he, what, that, what, Christ was, what the writer of Hebrews was saying? That yes, the Levitical priesthood of old, you had to be a Levite to be a, a part of that. And that is who God used to, to bring about the sacrifices, to roll those sins forward for another year for the Jewish nation. But when Christ came, and the, Hebrew, the, the book of Hebrews is, is all about Christ. It's all about the importance and the, uh, the, the elevation of Christ over all things, and especially over the Levitical priesthood. Now Christ is a priest, not after the old order, not after the Levitical order, but after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's saying that through that now, because we are linked to Christ, we are priests. And that's what Peter's, why Peter is saying that we are, we are high priests. We are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. Jesus Christ is our model for intercessory prayer. Jesus stands before God in between him and sinful men, just as the Old Testament priests did. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We see that in 1 Timothy 2. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us in Romans 8. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews 7. Jesus brings sinful man and a righteous God together, where? At the place of the blood sacrifice for sin, at the place of the cross. No longer is the blood of animals necessary as it was in the Old Testament. We can now approach God, as we talked about, on the basis of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross of Calvary for the remission of sin. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can now approach God boldly to the throne of grace. Jesus was an intercessor while he was here on earth. We read about that in the Gospels. He prayed for those who were sick. He prayed for those who were possessed by demons. He prayed for his disciples. He even prayed for you and me in John 17 when he interceded for us, for all those who would believe on him through his disciples. And Jesus continued his ministry of intercession after his death and resurrection when he returned to heaven. And that's what he's doing at this second. He is now interceding on our behalf in heaven. And so that's where we get the background of our, of our inter ministry of intercession. That's what it's modeled after. It's modeled after the high priest, Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf. But then also God is using us in this broad ministry of bringing uh, the, our, our needs and our, our desires to him in intercession. And so what is he promising here as it pertains to this? What is the promise in this verse? Let me read it again in verse 16. Is, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So as I said earlier, I take care that this word brother means a Christian brother. 
Uh, the word committing a sin literally means that this brother is sinning a sin. He's sinning in the present tense. Uh, and sin here is a singular noun, so it's, it's really talking about a specific sin that this brother is caught up in. In other words, a present ongoing struggle with a particular sin. And as I said, when he said here that it's not leading to death, this is spiritual death. Because that is the great truth of being the Christian, right? The death, where is your sting? There is no sting in death for us as the Christian because God has taken that away from us. We no longer have to live in fear that we will die spiritually. We all will die physically, but we will not die spiritually. That's the great truth of the Christian. That's the great hope that we live in, that we could never die the sin, the sin that leads to spiritual death. That has been taken because Christ died for us. He took that sin upon Him on the cross, thus averting our spiritual death. And so he's saying that here's a brother who's caught up in a sin and he's in the Christian realm and we know it's not ultimately going to lead him to, a, uh, to an eternal hell, but nonetheless, here's this brother caught in sin. What do we do? He says that we should pray and ask and God will give him life. Again, not spiritual life because he already has that. He's a brother. He already has spiritual life. Um, and so what is he talking about here that he will give him life? Well, I take this really not to mean the sense in life as we think it. What is the, what is the great hope of life in this, in, this, in this realm of the here and now for the Christian? What is this great hope that we have? It is knowing Jesus Christ. It is, it is living the Christian life. It is why we exist this day to bring forth his praises, to bring him glory. That is what the Bible talks about is life. When you're walking in fellowship and communing with God, what do you experience? You really experience life like no one else ever does. And when you are out of communion with God, when you're in sin, the Bible says God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He cannot look on sin favorably. Even in the lives of His people, He cannot just turn a blind eye. He cannot just say, well, they're giving it their best shot. No, He is grieved over our sin when we fall into sin, when we fall into it. And so He's saying... Here, that if people will pray, if they will be an agent of restoration, of bringing that erring brother back, that person who's caught up in sin, I will restore that fellowship between me and him. I will give him life. And so we see here that that promise here is directly connected to what we looked at in verses 14 and 15. He's saying that if, if you will take that same expectancy in prayer, if you will take that same expectancy and urgency that you bring to me in praying for your needs, for your brother that you see in sin, then I will use that for his good. Now, the sinning brother has the responsibility to turn from his sin. It's not just automatically from our prayer that I'm going to zap you with this great magical power that's going to make you stop sinning. We still have the responsibility of turning from our sin. But somehow in the grand scheme mystery of how God works in His sovereignty with all these sinful people that He deals with as His children, He is using the prayers of His saints as an agent, as a means to bring them out of their sin. And so that's, what the, that's the promise that He's trying to challenge us with this morning. Now let's make one thing clear. John does not say... If anyone sees his brother sinning, go tell the pastor so he can deal with it. Nor does he say, if anyone sees his brother sinning, call up all your friends and tell them about it so they can pray. Because that's really a thin spiritual cover for gossip. Nor does he say, if anyone sees his brother sinning, he should shake his head in disgust and ask, how could he do such a thing? That would be judging our brother. He's, this is, he's not saying any of those things. Rather, he's saying that if you see a brother in sin, pray for God to give him life. While we all are responsible for our own sins, only God can truly deliver us from that sin because only God can impart life. So we're dependent on God to deliver. But at the same time, the sinning brother is responsible to turn from his sin and take the necessary steps not to fall into it again. But also, before we speak to a brother about his sin, this is in the realm of maybe discipline or confronting a brother, we need to speak to God about that brother on his behalf. 
If we, if we did that, if, if all church discipline or confrontation issues were handled that way, we would never need any final steps of church discipline. If we would pray with expectancy that I really am grieved that my brother is caught in sin and I'm, I'm pleading for his case before God and then I'm, and when I'm in the right mind because of that, I'm going to him in love, then that is the agency of grace in the life of a church. And so the great promise here is that God uses our prayers for others. And that fits into the context of what John has been talking about. What is one of the, one of the main litmus tests for a true believer? Is that he love others. The, great, the two greatest commandments is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How much do you love yourself? Very much. I love myself very much. And when there's something in my life that's bothering me or there's something in my life that's above me or beyond me, you better bet I'm going to go to God in prayer. You better bet I'm going to make that a priority. And so what John is saying here and what, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us here, with that same urgency, with that same expectation that God will, is the one who can deliver us, love your brother the same way you would love yourself. Have that same grief that they are in sin as you grieve when you're in sin. And so that's the promise that John is telling us here is that we need to take this ministry seriously. And we need to realize that this is one of the ways that the Spirit of God builds His church. This is the way that Jesus builds His church. It's through the active prayers of His saints, not only, not only to do great things in the kingdom, not only to build habitat houses or have thriving ministries, or to go on this thing, or go do that, or this, but to do the hard work of coming before God on behalf of a brother who is in sin. I wonder if we take that seriously. I don't think I have in the past. And so how can we avail ourselves of this amazing promise? And it is an amazing promise that God would use our prayers on behalf of others who are in sin. How do we harness this? How do we make it work? How do we make it a reality in our lives and in the reality of this church? I just want to go back through it again and break it apart and just give a few practical applications that we can glean from this. Let's look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. The first phrase, if anyone sees... Sees with the audible eye, perceives, I see my brother in sin. Well, there's a few things that have to be happening here for that to be true. The first thing, I must be kingdom focused. I must live my life in a way that I'm kingdom focused. So if I'm kingdom focused, I'm in the Word of God. I'm growing from the Word of God. I understand what sin is. I understand what it does to people. And so that's what I'm seeing when I'm looking out on the horizon of, the, of this church and those around me, I'm kingdom-focused, and so I'm not worried about who won the ball game yesterday, even though that was, part, that was important to me last night when the Bulldogs won. But on the grand scheme of things, when I'm thinking about my life, and when I'm thinking about what's important and what's eternal and what needs to take and preoccupy my time, it is kingdom matters. It is, what is the state of the people around me? Are they growing in grace? Are they entangled in some sin that, is, that they're in bondage to and maybe they don't even know it? And so we must be kingdom-focused. We must see that that is why we're here. We are a kingdom. We are members of the kingdom of God. And to be a part of the kingdom of God has requirements to it. And we must live that way. The second thing I, I get from this, if we're going to see, we must be in community. How can I see you if I don't never see you? If I don't know what's going on in your life, if I'm not a part of your life outside of this one hour on Sunday morning, if that's all I know about you, how am I going to know about you? How am I going to know what you're struggling with? How are you going to know about me? Because I need this same intercessory prayer in my life as you need it in yours. And so we need to be a, 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 a church of community that is in community with one another. We need to see that the relationships that we have in this church are way more important than even the relationships we have in our physical family. 
outside of our physical, our, our, our main part of our family. Our fathers, our grandfathers, our sisters, our friends that may not even be, that may not be a part of this body. We need to see these as just as important. I need to look at Gary as my brother. He is my brother, but I mean, I'm talking about in the, in the most explicit way that you can describe a brother. I need to see him that way. And the rest of you the same way. We need to see each other. You need to see the person that's sitting beside you, the one that's sitting in front of you, or two rows up or two rows over to the side. They're your brother and sister in Christ. And we need to be involved in each other's life and take serious this disease called sin. We have been redeemed from it, and God has delivered us from it, but we have still the remnants of it. And so if we want to be a church that glorifies God, we need to eradicate the remaining sin. And we can't do that by ourselves. We need each other. And so we have to be in community with one another. And that leads us to another thing. We have to be accountable. goes without saying, right? If anyone sees your brother in sin, well, let's just... What's the motto say? Our church um, membership motto. If I see my brother in sin, I will in the most tender and affectionate manner point you back to the truth of God's Word. So help me God. We, everyone in here, I, I bet, has said that. It's a serious matter. It's a serious matter. And we have to be willing to receive. We have to be willing to go do that. We also have to be willing to receive that. Because it's probably at some point in life you're going to be either the recipient of it or you're going to be the one who has to do it. And so that brings accountability. That means that you're not going to be mad. that you, Whenever I come to you and tell you, hey, brother, I'm seeing this in your life and I'm concerned, you're not going to be offended at that because you know that I love you. You know that I'm coming to you because it grieves me that you are, you are maybe in a, in a situation that's going to affect your relationship with Christ. And that's way more important than anything else in this life. And so you need to see, and we need to understand that accountability is a good thing. It's something that God has given us to be healthy because we all need it. The second thing he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, well, that presupposes that I understand who my brother is, that I'm loving, that I have love for you and you have love for me. You know, we use that word pretty loosely today. Hey, brother, how's it going? I'm okay. Hey, brother, how are you? Brother, brother, brother. We use it pretty loosely. But it's an important term. It's an affectionate term. And it's a real term because we are brothers. We are brothers and sisters. Our Father is God. We're His children. And so by nature of that we're brothers and sisters and so i have to love i need to love you and you need to love me if we see our brother committing a sin we must have humility do you see your own sin as the most grievous sin in the world because if you don't you're not being humble because the sin that I see in Stevie and Gary and Miss Virginia is only just a limited amount that I'm able to maybe perceive or see. But the sin that I see in myself explodes beyond, way beyond that. Because I hear my thoughts all day long. I hear my, I see my actions. I hear my words. And I may only see just a brief, minuscule part of what you're dealing with. And so, in the grand scheme of looking at just that way, I should be the chief of sinners in my life. And that should be the same way for you. You should be, you should echo with Paul that you are the chief of sinners. And that will breed humility. And whenever you do see someone falling into sin, you're not going to do what I said a while ago by shaking your head and saying, I can't believe they did that. What you should be saying is, I can't believe I'm not doing the same thing. That's what humility does for us. And so if we have that type of mindset for each other, 
then we will have a vibrant prayer life because we will be informed and we will have the right mindset for God to use us as we pray. He goes on to say, If anyone sees his brother falling into sin, he shall ask. Now, I take two things from this. He should ask specifically. Be specific. Let me read you a quote from David Jeremiah. I think he illustrates this very well. How often have we prayed something like, Oh, Lord, be with Cousin Billy now in a special way. Have we stopped to consider what it is we're requesting? Imagine that you are a parent who is preparing to leave your children with a babysitter. Would you dream of saying, Oh, Betsy, I ask you now that you would be with my children in a special way. No way. You would say, Betsy, the kids need to be in bed by 9. They can have one snack before their baths. And please make sure they finish their homework. You can reach us at this number. And if there's any problem, if you have any questions before we go, we'd love to answer them. We are very specific with our requests and instructions for our babysitters. We want, to know, we want them to know specifics. It should be no different in prayer. You see what he's saying? On things like that, we're very specific. That's just one example. We're very specific because we want to be sure we're understood. And we're looking for a result. That's why we're so specific. And so the thing that John is teaching us here in this passage is that we should have that same mindset when we're coming to him in prayer because he's the one who can grant that prayer. He just tells us if we ask anything according to his word, he hears us. And he hears us favorably. And we have the request that we have right now. And so I need to be specific. I need to be praying, Brother so-and-so is struggling with this particular sin. Or I know this and this person is struggling with that. And I need to be specifically bringing those things before the throne of grace every day so that God can answer. Because what do, how do we want God to answer? In some general haphazard way? Or do we want God to answer specifically? <laughs> That's kind of a duh yay, right? We want God to answer specifically. And so why would we not ask specifically? And especially in the realm of intercessory prayer and coming before the throne on behalf of each other, we need to be specific in, in laying out those burdens before Him. And then we also need to ask with expectancy. This goes with what we talked about last week. You know, this, this is a promise from God. He writes His name on His promises. His reputation is wrapped up in His promises. They're as good as any, any bank, anything in this world can guarantee. They're, it's way better than that because there's nothing in this world that's guaranteed, but the thing that we know that's guaranteed is that God's promises will come to pass. And so He has promised us that He will use us as we pray. When we pray about things that we're struggling with, and here today when we pray on behalf of others, He promises to use that. For the other's good. Doesn't that excite you? Is there anybody in here who does not know anybody that they can pray for? I don't think there is. There is, there is somebody in your life, there is somebody in this church that you know that you can be praying for. And you can be praying with expectancy because your mind is being shaped by the will of God. Your mind is being shaped towards the will of God, by the Word of God. And so you know what God expects out of us, and so that's what you're praying for on their behalf. And God is saying, I will do it. I don't know how that gets worked out, but all He says, I will do it. And then finally He says, and God will give him life. You know, and as I said, I think this means restoration, being restored, being freed from this bondage of this sin that so easily ensnares that person. He frees them from it. And what happens when you're freed from sin? You're restored. Restoration. Restoration between that person and God and restoration between that person and his brothers and sisters. Because if you're in sin, you not only have a bad relationship with God going on, you have a bad relationship with the rest of your brothers and sisters. It impacts everybody. And so restoration comes when God gives life. And it's a sweet thing. It is a sweet thing to be restored when you're out of fellowship with God and especially when you're out of, and also when you're out of fellowship with one another. 
It is what we should all yearn for is restoration and peace and joy in our community. And God says He'll give it. He will give life. And then what happens after restoration? Forgiveness. The forgiveness that Christ promises that He gives. And the forgiveness that we can grant and and receive from others. What is the pattern of our forgiveness? The pattern of His forgiveness towards us. How in... How in the name of Christ can I withhold forgiveness from anybody who has only sinned against me in some small degree in comparison to the enormity of my sin against Christ? How can I do that? If I am doing that, it's a sad commentary for me. Because I have taken my mind off of my forgiveness and off, the, off what it cost Christ. And so I want to urge you this morning to take seriously this issue of prayer. Not only praying for the things that we pray for all the time. People who are sick, we do that. That's good. We need to do that. But serious issues even beyond that. Because it's not good enough, it's worthless to pray for somebody who has a broken arm if he's going to hell. I'm not saying we don't pray for the person with the broken arm, but the most important thing is the eternal destiny of that person. That's that's in the realm of interceding for unbelievers. That's a whole other subject that we haven't really gotten into, but that's a part of this issue of ministry of intercessory too intercession on others is that we pray for the lost to come to know Christ. But here specifically in the, in the life and health of a, of, a, of a church, God is telling us in very clear terms that if you want a good church, if you want an, a, a healthy church, then you better be on your knees. And if you're not, I'm not going to give it to you. Father, we are all guilty before you that we have probably put our own desires and our own likes before others. Lord, I know I am guilty of not standing in in the place of others before you. And I ask for you to forgive me. And I ask that you would forgive us, God, if if we're guilty of that. And I pray with great expectancy this morning that, God, that you would make us into a house of prayer. And that you would heal us and bring peace to us. But most importantly, God, I pray that you would be glorified through us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.